Hi, everybody. I'm all dressed up in my tails tonight. Don't let that scare you. <laughs> yeah, some nights I come out just in a black shirt, but tonight's an opening night, so um, it's conductors and waiters at very, 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 very special restaurants. We're the only ones left. You can't get them properly taken care of. You can't find wing shirts. So I'm more and more favoring black shirts. Is that okay with all of you? I hope so. <laughs> so my daughters say things like, get with it, Dad, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so The Marriage of Figaro, how many of you here are seeing The Marriage of Figaro for the first time ever in their lives? Wow, wonderful. Okay, where are you all? Up there too? Anybody up there? Thanks. Uh, how many of you had seen just now The Barber Seville? Okay, did you like it? Is that okay? Those of you that didn't see it, you've got one more chance tomorrow afternoon. That's it. Now, those of you that have seen it know the story that precedes The Marriage of Figaro because the three plays go in the order The Marriage of Figaro, uh, sorry, The Barber Seville, The Marriage of Figaro, and then the opera, The Ghost of Versailles, which is loosely based on the third of those three plays, which is called The Guilty Mother, La Mère Coupable. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and how many of you saw Ghost of Versailles? Did you like it? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Uh, you'll, find, uh, you'll find in your program you know, one of my articles, you'll find, don't read them now, there's excellent uh, uh, notes uh, which are more informational. This is, a, uh, this is excellent reading late at night, uh, sleeping material for sure. Uh, there's also a long version, there's a short version in the program, there's a long version online and um, that you will find also you should have a family tree there. Did you get that? Okay, um, so that's going to help us identify, you follow that along when we start talking about the characters, you know, you know them, here it is, it looks like something like that, if you don't have one you can just check with the ushers again. Um, it gives you an idea of all the family relationships. Uh, and if you have 2020 vision or better, and you are sitting here, you can also see these panels here. If you can't read them from the distance of 10 feet, which is understandable, uh, check them during intermission. They'll still be up here. But you have all of the same information um, on that uh, little paper that you have. Now, um, we're going to review some of you, as you will have heard, some of this at the earlier uh, speeches, forgive me if a little bit of it is repetitious about Beaumarchais, about Figaro, about the composer. We're going to concentrate a lot on Mozart and Da Ponte tonight because those, of course, Mozart, the composer uh, Lorenzo da Ponte, the librettist of this great, great, great masterpiece. We're going to concentrate on that because um, that will not have come up in the earlier speeches. Now, if you didn't hear the earlier talks, um, you'll, you'll get a lot of that anyway. And for, if you're hearing it for the second or even the third time now, it's good because there's going to be a, uh, an exam at the end of the season on all of this. So uh, you're committed to memory as best you can. Okay, we are celebrating the French playwright Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais. That's a long name. He was born in 1732 and died in 1799. He was born in January of 1732, less than a month later. George Washington was born, to give you some idea of the time, and he died in May of 1799, and George Washington died in December of 1799. So, um, uh, thanks to the research of my brother who corrected me when I was up here last time, uh, that is, uh, those are, they have exactly the same years, so you get an idea. George Washington, of course, being here in America, Beaumarchais spent uh, almost all of his, no, he spent most of his time in France, but he did travel. And um, 
his life will end. What happened in between for both men? Revolutions, American Revolution, French Revolution, in that order. Uh, George Washington had nothing to do with the French Revolution, but Pierre-Augustin uh, uh, Caron de Beaumarchais, we'll just call him Beaumarchais now, okay, had a lot to do with our revolution because um, unbeknownst to most of us who studied in school and never heard about it, Beaumarchais is one of the heroes of that because he tried to convince the French king to support the young rebels. The French king was too hesitant, did not do it, and so Beaumarchais organized an enormous uh, shipment of, of uh, arms equipment to the young rebel army, which is credited with having uh, been the won the uh, Battle of Saratoga, which, as you know, was a decisive battle. For this, he got no credit, no thanks. He tried to, got none. The story was uh, squelched. And first time it's being even coming out is 1880s. That's 100 years after the fact. And then uh, as one of a very keen listener from one of the previous speeches came and told me, he said, you know what? If you put Beaumarchais and CIA together on your, go to the internet, you will find a dossier on Beaumarchais. <laughs> so I did. And here it is, it's about 11 pages or 10, 11 hour time. This is, this is the whole story of Beaumarchais and the American Revolution, and it was declassified on September 22nd, 1993. <laughs> I don't know what that says about anybody, but it's a little strange that Beaumarchais should be classified up until that time. Uh, so uh, there's the beginning of the historical reference to them. Uh, now, the other characters we're going to be with. The next born is Lorenzo da Ponte. I'm going to tell you a lot about him. Uh, in Venice, he is the librettist for The Marriage of Figaro. He also wrote the librettos for the two other most popular, most beloved masterpieces in Italian by, uh, by, uh, by Mozart, and they are uh, Don Giovanni and Così fan tutte. Uh, he's born in 1749. Uh, he will come to America, where he, will, he is actually buried in New York City. More on that shortly. Um, da Ponte's uh, grave is not, uh, is not known exactly where it is. And that was also the case with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was the next born, 1756. He died very young in 1791, uh, also in a pauper's grave. Nobody knows where he's buried. There's going to be two other names. I'm just going to mention them as sidebars. Uh, Giovanni Paisiello, an Italian Neapolitan master who wrote about 90 operas, highly respected in his time, who wrote another, well, he wrote the first version of the Barber Seville. Um, why do I mention that? I mention that because Mozart was clearly familiar with that when he wrote uh, when he wrote The Marriage of Figaro. There's a lot of internal evidence. Apparently, um, they met at one point in Vienna, and the young Mozart was interested to see what the older Paisiello um, had done. He, he digested it and then worked, worked on it. Now, the um, Paisiello Bar Seville, which is rarely performed, I've only done it once in the 1970s, and I have never seen a performance that I didn't conduct, is a very, very, very wonderful work. It's only been shoved out of history by the Rossini. So, as a special treat, if you want to see two semi-staged performances with the USC Thornton Orchestra, um, young musicians from USC, with our own young artists from Los Angeles Opera, from the Domingo program here, you can see them on April the 10th and 11th um, at 7.30 in the evening, conducted by me. Um, at Cal State, and if you go on www.eventbrite.com, you can reserve your tickets. They are very inexpensive. 
I think they're a dollar. Uh, it is very, I highly recommend this because you may not ever get a chance to see Paisiello Barbara Seville otherwise. And of course, we have one more performance. Rossini is the youngest of all of these. He's born in 1792. Um, he's born on February the 29th. He will live to be eight, eight, 1868, uh, where uh, he will die consequently at a tender age of about 20 years old. He was born on February 29th, so he only gets to celebrate his birthday once every four years, and, and he's still a young man, uh, Rossini, to this day. Now, now to put you into the perspective of the place, 1781, the king is uh, Louis the uh, Sixteenth of France. He bans the first version of the marriage of Figaro that Beaumarchais writes. He likes Beaumarchais. In fact, Beaumarchais was very well integrated into the court. But he bans it because he considers that it has incendiary uh, uh, substance. And what is that? The incendiary substance is um, a, a generally anti-aristocratic tone and a, and a sharp criticism of the, uh, uh, not just the uh, uh, aristocracy and, and by extension the, 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 noble, the nobility and the, and the royalty and the king, but it definitely takes the viewpoint that the servant class, the working class, is in fact the brains of, the, of civilization. They are the ones who work. They are the ones who do things. They, because they do not have the privileges of the aristocracy, they have to they have to develop themselves, um, and yet they will always be uh, held down in a, in a very stratified society. Now, nowadays, we take, that, we take it for granted that that stratified society is wrong, but that was not at all the case in Europe or most of the world at the time. And so Beaumarchais is with that, um, that those principles of liberty and egalitarianism that become the standard of the, of the French Revolution and, by extension, the American Revolution, because of the men like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, who were so deeply affected and influenced by French Enlightenment thought. Um, th that's what Beaumarchais is doing. So, um, but eventually, uh, three years later, in 1784, uh, the king relented. The piece was performed for the first time at the Comédie Française, and it was a great success, and its political overtones went around. People knew that something very, very important had happened. And they, re they reached another kingdom, or a king, or emperor, in Vienna. So Vienna is where Mozart is, and Vienna, uh, Mozart writes this um, for the emperor. Now, those of you who have seen Amadeus, a lot of you have seen Amadeus, you know, the emperor keeps saying, too many notes, too many notes, too many notes. Okay, well, the marriage of Figaro, um, perhaps it had too many notes, but it was, uh, it was highly successful. And that's only two years, 1786, after the premiere of The Marriage of Figaro in the Comédie Française. Um, now, Lorenzo da Ponte, and uh, I will get, get to him very shortly, but I want to read to you his explanation of what he did with the Beaumarchais play to make it into the Mozart opera. He said, I have not made a simple translation of Beaumarchais, but rather an imitation, or let us say, an extract. I was compelled to reduce the 16 original characters to 11, two of which had to be played by a single actor, and to admit, in uh, to omit, sorry, in addition to one whole act, many effective scenes. In spite, however, of all the zeal and care of, on the part of both the composer and myself, to be brief, the opera will not be one of the shortest. 
Our excuse will be a variety of development of this drama to paint faithfully and in full color the diverse passions that are aroused and to offer a new type of spectacle. His words were prophetic because the marriage of Figaro was a new type of spectacle in every sense. Music, musically, it was a quantum leap to any opera that had been written before. Dramatically, in terms of sophistication, it was a quantum leap. The idea that you could take a comedy and make people laugh all night and yet imbue the entire story with a, with a deeper significance, a, a significance of um, human relations, of societal relationship, that is new to the opera. And the fact is it is still one of the, uh, one of the greatest uh, operas, one of the greatest works of art, I consider, in, in, certainly in classical music, if not in Western culture in general. I think if you put a gun to my head and said, okay, you can only conduct two operas now for the rest of your life, but you have to do it every day, what are they? I would say Falstaff and The Marriage of Figaro. They are the two most life-affirming, profound works that will make you laugh all night, but will make you think, weep, be moved, and have all the emotions that we, that we seek through literature and through, uh, and through music. So uh, Ponte really knew what he was, what he was doing and also what he predicted uh, became true. Now, I want to read you just a little bit of the parallel biographies of Beaumarchais and Ponte because I find them very similar. Now, you know a lot about Beaumarchais because we've talked about him. I'm just going to reread that little Wikipedia uh, introduction. He was a French playwright, watchmaker, inventor, musician, diplomat, fugitive, spy, publisher, horticulturalist, arms dealer, satirist, financier, and revolutionary, both French and American Revolution. Okay, that's Beaumarchais, and we've talked about that before. Now, De Ponte is no less interesting. I'll read, uh, I will read a bit of his, uh, the introduction. He was born, his name was Emanuele Conigliano, in the Republic of Venice. He was Jewish by birth, the eldest of three sons. In 1764, his father, uh, the widow, he was a widower, converted himself and his family to Roman Catholicism in order to remarry, and wa as was the custom, took the name of Lorenzo da Ponte from the bishop who baptized him. In other words, the bishop baptized him, gave him a name, da Ponte, now you are Lorenzo da Ponte, and he actually adopted him. And thanks to this bishop, uh, the three brothers studied in the seminary. The bishop died in 1768, after which Lorenzo moved to another seminary where he took minor orders in 1770. That which means you can consider him a priest by 1770. And he also became a, prof a professor of literature and was ordained a priest by 1773. And he began at this peri period writing poetry in Italian and Latin. In 1773, he moved to Venice, where he made his living as a teacher of Latin, Italian, and French. Although he was a Catholic priest, the young man led a dissolute life. This is where it gets interesting now. <laughs> While priest of the Church of San Luca, he took a mistress with whom he had two children. At his 1779 trial, where he was charged with public concubinage, I don't know how to pronounce that, concubinage, I don't know how to pronounce it, and abduction of a respect respectable woman. It was alleged that he had, lived, that he had been living in a brothel and organizing entertainments there. <laughs> uh, he was actually arrested in a back alley with the young lady, and he was found guilty, and ba uh, guilty uh, by the way, of tax evasion as well. 
as he did not report his entertainment at the brothel as he should have. He was found guilty and banished for 15 years from Venice. Well, he'll go from Venice. He'll go to Vienna. He will meet Mozart, of course, in Vienna. He will become, thanks to the help of Antonio Salieri, who was the leading composer, Italian composer in Vienna, and you will remember him as maybe the nemesis of Mozart at the end of his life. Um, he applied for and he obtained a post for becoming a librettist at the Italian theater in Vienna. He also found a patron, and he then met uh, Mozart. Now, he will write those three librettos together with Mozart um, in, in order, The Marriage of Figaro the first, Don Giovanni a year later, and three years later than that, Cosi fan tutte. Uh, he will also uh, write uh, a, a libretto to a, a composer whose name is Soler, Coral Uno Cosa Rara, and I am, uh, was unhappy because I went into my safe to find, I have an original libretto from the period, it's now 200 years old, with of Cosarada by Soler, with, it says, libretto by Da Ponte. I'll bring it out another time. I promise to bring it out again. Uh, I couldn't find it today when I went looking for it. Um, now, after various problems, financial usually, he had to leave Vienna. He never went back to Venice. He may, went to London. Um, he brought his girlfriend with him, and at a certain point, he got into financial trouble in London, brought his girlfriend, who is now the mother of four children, and they go to America. He comes here in the United States. He settled in New York first, and then in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Has anybody been in Sunbury, Pennsylvania? Yes. Fantastic. How is it? <laughs> he opened a grocery store there, and that's how he made a living. And then he gave private Italian lessons. He returned to New York and he opened a bookstore. He became, um, he gained an appointment as professor of Italian literature at Columbia College. In other words, he taught, taught at Columbia. He was the first Roman Catholic priest, he still was a priest, <laughs> to be appointed to the faculty of Columbia. And he was also the first man to have been born Jewish to, have been, to, con to te teach at Columbia. Um, in New York, he introduced opera and produced the performance of Don Giovanni in 1825. And he also introduced uh, uh, Rossini's music in the U.S. through a concert tour with his niece, Julia da Ponte. So he's quite an entrepreneur. Now, despite all of this, he, well, the one thing he was not good at was business and keeping a balanced budget. So he went from problem to problem, and he, uh, and he, he, died, um, he died not a rich man. But he has left us with one of the greatest monuments, and if it's just these three works, that alone should find him a place in the, in the, uh, uh, in the pantheon of writers. And now, how interesting, this very varied life, colorful, how, how, how curious that Beaumarchais, who had such a similar life, who did so many things, and we've outlined some of them, uh, they seemed, there seems to have been a spiritual bond between these men, um, even though they couldn't possibly have known much about each other. Certainly, Beaumarchais probably had never even heard of Da Ponte. And, of course, a lot of the colorful character of, of Da Ponte's uh, life is going to be lived after Beaumarchais' death. Um, but they, uh, those, uh, those lives inform a great deal this work. Now, uh, you will remember that Beaumarchais created the name Figaro, and it comes from Fils Caron, Fils Caron, that is the son of Caron. Caron was the family into which Beaumarchais was born. His father's name was Caron. He added Beaumarchais to his name after he married up twice, and both wives conveniently died. And he took the name of Beaumarchais, which was a property, in order to uh, give himself, at least, 
uh, an aristocratic name. Now, he's born innately democratic and a defender of equal rights and respect. Now, uh, the, some of those you will find uh, not so much in the opera, but very much in the play, uh, uh, an enormous amount of uh, competition. Well, there is in the opera, but uh, intellectual competition between servant and master. The servant always being smarter because the servant, Figaro, is really Beaumarchais. And he's always questioning the nature of, the, of servants, and he becomes, Figaro, in fact, becomes the author's mouthpiece. Um, he, there's an assumption of superior wit on the part of, uh, of, the, of Figaro the servant, and uh, there are many great lines. For instance, the Count dismisses Figaro as idle and dissolute, and he says, uh, Figaro to the Count, on the basis of the virtues commonly required in a servant, does your excellency know many masters who would pass muster as valets? He said, um, the servant drives the plot, the master executes it. Now, we saw that clearly in the Bar of Seville, where the young, uh, beautiful girl, where is she? Uh, Rosina. Uh, Rosina is uh, living as, with a guardian, an old man who wants to marry her. We discussed this before. Beaumarchais said, uh, the story of the Barber Seville is how does a young determined man outwit an old determined ma married man to marry a young beautiful woman? But it's all done with the genius of Figaro. And Figaro, of course, is Beaumarchais. So we're going to see how he runs the plot. Now, he's going to run the plot in the marriage of Figaro a lot, except there, is, there are two people smarter than him, one particular, and the other is his fiancée, Susanna, who is also the servant. We are going to see the servant class as the really, really smart ones. Um, another question, he says to the Count, because you are a great nobleman, you think you are a great genius. Nobility, fortune, rank, and position, how proud that must make you feel. And what have you done to deserve such advantages? Put yourself to the trouble of being born. Nothing more. Whereas I, lost among the obscure crowd, have to deploy more knowledge, more calculation, and skill merely to survive than has sufficed to rule all the provinces of Spain for a century. And a final complaint on the count, Count's part. The Count says, well, why does it that the servants in this house take longer to dress than their masters? And Figaro replies, because they have no servants to assist them. So you get the tone of the, of the Beaumarchais uh, marriage of Figaro. I would say that the, there is, the entire story tells of the two struggles, simultaneous, the struggle, class struggle, the struggle between the servant and pe peasant class on the bottom and the aristocracy and the nobility on the top. And of course, that's about to be played out in a major way in the French Revolution. So that's the first struggle. It's a class struggle. It's vertical. The other uh, is horizontal, and it is the battle of the sexes. The struggle between men and women for dominance. Um, the struggle of the servant class, the peasant structure of feudalism, of course, is now in certain respects passé, but in other respects it's not passé at all. The battle of the sexes is as... Uh, present in our lives as it was in the time of Mozart and de Ponti, and I think one can say very little about the future of humanity, but I think you can say with absolute certitude that the battle of the sexes, understood in these terms, is going to be there for the entirety of human history. You're clapping, yeah. <laughs> well, there's no, there is actually no way around it. Now, those two battles, those two struggles are going to come together in this 
in this uh, play in the form of a discussion about something that is of historical, uh, it's a historical phenomenon, but it never had the name that we're going to use for it. You will hear a great deal of discussion in this opera about le droit du seigneur. Le droit du seigneur, that is the right of the Lord. And what is, who's that Lord? Well, he's the Count, he's the Marquis, he's the, he's the Duke, he's, he's anybody in the feudal system uh, up till the king who has uh, vassals and people who work for him and are totally dependent on his goodwill. What is his right? This right is he may sleep with any woman who is a vassal or part of his feudal, uh, feudal realm the night of her wedding. And that is according to Beaumarchais, a right. Now, Voltaire first used the, uh, uh, I, would, I shouldn't say first used this term. Voltaire has already used this term. Beaumarchais has picked it up. Now, how historic the actual term and the institutionalizing of that right is, is a matter of historical debate. But there is no question that it was practiced widely. And then it developed a secondary aspect, which is, in fact, the, the Lord had the right to sleep with the young girl on the evening of her wedding unless a certain amount of money was paid to the Lord. So what happened is it became a very, uh, just another form of taxation on, uh, on the people who lived in that area. So corrupt? Absolutely. And so that droit du seigneur actually, um, actually incorporates both struggles. It's the struggle between the lord of the realm and the vassal servant peasant who is under him, and it also involves the struggle between the sexes because it's another, another example of male dominance and male assumption of dominance and a male, male assumption of privileges that he will not afford to his wife or to anybody else, but he will claim for himself. Now, the countess, our countess, who was, of course, Rosina in the Barber Seville, you can see her on your paper there. Now she's a countess. Now they've been married for several years. And now she's learned a lot about life because, as it, as it always seems to be, after a few years, the count has uh, grown tired of just uh, being with his wife. And he, of course, is now very active, running around his realm with girls from the forest, with maids, with uh, other, perhaps other duchesses he meets along the, the way, all sorts of things. But he, he takes it for granted that his privilege is infidelity, and of course, she doesn't have that same privilege. So the countess in second act will say, to complain to Susanna, that's Susanna the servant, of course, that's the way it is with most modern husbands, unfaithful on principle, capricious by nature, and out of pride, jealous. And so it is. And so that's what our, that's what our story is going to revolve around, is that um, those two struggles are going to come to a head um, over this question that Susanna and Figaro wish to marry. They are servants. This opera is called The Marriage of Figaro, but it really ought to be called The Marriage of Figaro and Susanna, because Susanna is an equal partner. And here is where Mozart comes in. Mozart consistently in the context of his time came not only to the defense of women but in, in, in a way uh, glorified the soul of woman over the soul of men. You will see that the men usually come out looking not as well as the women in most of his operas. You'll see it tonight. Uh, you'll see the grown-up, badly behaved uh, 
count, we'll see the young adolescent badly behaved Carabino, but we forgive him because he's, a he's still a minor. Um, you will see grumpy, uh, irritable men, and you will see women who have somehow or other have a better sense of, uh, of, of structure and of sympathy, empathy, and compassion. The Countess will show all of these qualities. Susanna will show them as well, and Susanna will also show um, an enormous wit. And that's going to be the story. So let's take a look at your paper there. Um, you'll, this is the marriage of Figaro. Here's our Countess. Her name was Rosina. You remember her from the Barber of Seville. Um, the Count, of course, is there. Now, they both have servants. Here they are down here. Susanna and Figaro are their servants. Susanna directly reports to the Countess. Figaro directly reports to the Count. Um, they are in a constantly competitive uh, relationship, male relationship, and that will go all the way through to the end of the trilogy to the guilty mother. Susanna and the Countess are quite different. They support each other, they empathize with each other, they understand each other. You'll remember Dr. Bartolo. He was Rosina's guardian until uh, he wasn't. Uh, he's back again. He is now functioning as the lawyer to Marcellina. Who is Marcellina? She is an older woman who uh, once lent Figaro money. Figaro, like Beaumarchais and like da Ponte, often didn't make ends meet, and so he was constantly borrowing money, not paying it back, and in fact, he did not pay back Marcellina. He made a promise to Marcellina, if I don't pay back this sum, you may marry me. The day has come. She decides she will not wait any longer for the money. She wants to marry him. She takes Do uh, Dr. Bartolo as her, as her lawyer and, and determined they are to make Figaro marry Marcellina. Now, Dr. Bartolo, of course, has, uh, well, he has, a, this is a vindictive act. Why? Because he knows that Figaro, back here in the Bar of Seville, outwitted him and uh, helped the Count marry Rosina. So he's delighted to take Marcellina's case on, and he's going to help her. Now, the, this will be in operation for two acts. I shouldn't really tell you what happens in the third act for those of you that have never seen it, but there's a big surprise in Act 3, and you're going to see why Marcellina and Figaro are not going to get married after all. And the Count, of course, is very frustrated with this because he, he wished to punish Figaro as well because the Count, the entire time, wants to seduce Susanna. Her name, Susanna, is not an accident. It's taken from the scriptures because that was the chaste Susanna, referred to in Italian as la casta Susanna. She is chaste, she is faithful. You will remember that the elders uh, watched her while she took her bath and then they accused her of adultery. And that is Susanna, faithful to, uh, faithful at the personification of fidelity. Now, there are some other characters. Don Basilio, you'll remember him from the Barber of Seville. He's a defrocked, I think he's defrocked priest. He um, teaches music. Uh, he arranges marriages, and he is a general gossip. He floats between the aristocratic world and the servant world, intriguing on both levels. He floats between the men and the women in their battle of the sexes, and he intrigues between on both sides. Uh, there is a, a gardener, his name is Antonio. He is generally drunk. He, is, he has a daughter named Barbarina. She is a delightful young girl. I think she's meant to be 14 or 15 years old. She's in love with Cherubino. Cherubino is in love with her. Cherubino is a page, and he has the run of the castle. Cherubino is in love with everybody. He is a nascent Don Giovanni. 
Um, but nevertheless, we love him and forgive him because he is just so, he's just so lovable. Uh, he falls in love five times a day. He is clearly in love with Susanna and most of all the Countess, and it will be hinted at that there is an attraction between Carabino on the Countess's part. Now, the Count has been ignoring the Countess long enough that even she, faithful as she is, can be, can be at least tempted. Now, she's not going to give in to temptation, and the story would not make sense if she did. But as we know who know the guilty mother, 20 years later, she will father a son together with Carabino. So, that, but you don't know that because Beaumarchais didn't know that when he wrote The Marriage of Figaro. So there they are, they want to get married. I don't know if they ever will, I doubt they will, but they will certainly spend that, the end of this opera, they're going to spend that night together, that's for sure. Um, the only other interesting character, well, the only other character is Don Curcio. Don Curcio is the notary or the lawyer who comes in in Act Three in order to prosecute Figaro and make him marry Marcellina. Now, his original name in the, um, in the play was Don Guzman, Guzman. Now, who is he? He is a thinly, uh, he is a thinly disguised copy of a famous lawyer in Paris whose name was Louis Valentin Guzman. Who was he? He was a big enemy of Beaumarchais. Beaumarchais hated him and had a public scandal. They libeled each other, and he hated him so profoundly that he found a place for him in the marriage of Figaro. Just as you'll remember from the ghost of uh, Versailles, uh, Berjas, who was the terrible, terrible, wicked, evil uh, uh, nemesis of everybody, he was based on another man whose name was Bergasse, who was another lawyer who Beaumarchais had the same, with whom Beaumarchais had the same experience. So Beaumarchais is tangling with lawyers all the time, and he's coming out on the bottom most of the time, and he hates them, and so he finds two places to ridicule him, and you will see Don Curcio when you meet him in the third act as a rather ridiculous character. So uh, th that is an overall view of all of the characters. I'm not going to tell you the story because I want it to unfold gradually to those of you that might not know it, but I do want to give you some highlights to listen to. Uh, the subtitle of the Barbara Seville was the useless precaution. In other words, Dr. Bartolo employed useless precautions to try to keep that beautiful young bird, Rosina, from flying out of the cage that he had created for her. The um, subtitle for The Marriage of Figaro is The Crazy Day, La Folle Journée in French, La Folla Giornata in Italian. The Crazy Day. As it should be in, uh, from Greek drama on, this is, has unity of time and place. It takes place in one place in one day. Act one is the morning, act two is later in the morning, act three must be getting toward evening, and act four is clearly evening. And so within this one day, all sorts of crazy things are happening, and Mozart gives us a sense of the incredible energy that's going to go through this opera when the overture starts. It started. Did you hear that? almost missed it. Remember I told you that a lot of overtures start loudly in order to attract the audience's attention? This is his version of a joke. In other words, to start the piece without the audience making sure, making sure that the audience really heard it. He employed this once in, an, in a symphony, the Paris Symphony in Paris, and found that the audience was so thrilled when they found that, they, that he had made a joke on them that they, they clapped so loudly he had to repeat the last movement of the Paris Symphony. So he's done this before. It's going to start like this. 
going to get energy. Listen to that again. Fast as the wind. And that's how this plot is going to go. Fast as the wind, all night. You'll remember that from the Ghost of Versailles, perhaps. This, uh, this overture as well as the Rossini overtures are played everywhere in the world on concert stage. Then when the curtain goes up, we will meet Figaro and Susanna. Figaro is measuring the room that the Count has given them for the bed they will sleep in, hopefully that night and when they're married. And you will hear him counting. to listen to the French horns which are about to play. And here they are. You hear bop, 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 French horns. More on that in a moment. Cinque. Five. Dieci. Ten. Venti. Twenty. Trenta. Trenta. Thirty. Thirty-six. Quarantatre, 43. So, you can hear him counting when you hear the motive in the orchestra. That's him counting and measuring those, uh, measure, with his measuring stick. Now, at the end of, the, of this piece, you will also hear... I want to draw your attention, subtle at first, the French horns. Here they come. That's what you're listening to. Now, what is that? This is the first example that I know of in any opera where the idea, the use of the word uh, le corna, which means horns, and as the instrument is called corni, which refer to the cuckold's horns. Mozart loved that. Da Ponte loved that. And in turn, Rossini will love that. Because this is going to be, uh, the, the issue here is going, is the Count going to get to cuckold Figaro or not? And those horns will be coming out at very important pace. So keep your eyes and ears attuned to that during the course of the evening. Here they are again. Hear the horns. Figaro says, if you want to dance, I, you want to dance, then you're going to dance with me and I'm going to call the tune. That's what Figaro says, all right? Now, much later on, in, in the last act, Figaro will, will rant against women and their lack of fidelity because he believes Susanna is unfaithful. Of course she isn't. We know she's not, but he does not. The horns. And Figaro hears those horns and reacts to them. He says, everybody knows about what happens. And a third time. Now, this opera is divided into set pieces and recitatives. We've talked about that before. The recitatives sound something like this. They are accompanied by the harpsichord. This is how the plot gets pushed forward. And then there are fixed pieces. 
as there were in the Barber Seville, solo arias by one person, duets, trios, and, so, and some of them come to a full close. You are allowed to clap at the end of one of these if you like it. As I said to those of you that saw the Barber Seville, we discourage clapping and interrupting when we're doing Parsifal and uh, Wozzeck and Pelleas de Melisan. We encourage it here because it was written for just that. So follow your instincts. You want to clap, you clap. If you don't like it, don't clap. <laughs> if you really hate it, no, you shouldn't boo. No, no. Now. This is another type of recitative. It has it uses the orchestra. This is called a recitativo accompagnato, an accompanied recitative, which means not going to use the harpsichord, the whole orchestra participate. We are going to meet. Dr. Bartolo, he's going to talk about La Vendetta, important word in the vocabulary of all operas, vengeance. He's going to take vengeance on Figaro, and you can hear his pompous. We're going to meet Carabino, who's going to tell us that every woman makes his heart throb, and you can hear that throbbing in the orchestra. Here's the most famous, uh, famous melody from the opera. It's Figaro. It's called Non Piu Andrei. It was played in throughout Vienna after the opening of this opera by every beer garden band, every musician on the street. More serious will be the Countess when we meet her because she's going to be, she's not going to be a tragic character, but she's going to be on another plane. She is lamenting the lost love and fidelity of her husband. And you can hear the beauty of that expressed in this. I'm racing through here because I know we have to stop soon. Voi che sapete. This is Carabino's song, the one he likes to sing to all the ladies in the castle. You may remember that we, it was quoted in The Ghost of Versailles. And you'll recognize its melody as well. Now, the most amazing construction and creation by Mozart, amongst others in this opera, is the finale of Act Two. We've often talked about finales having all the characters on stage. He created it, and here's the creation. It starts like this. The Count and the Countess arguing. Two people. The Countess. Then, later, joined by Susanna. There are now three. Here she comes, Susanna. Then Figaro will come in. Now we're up to four. Well, there is no interruption. This is, an, this is a, a finale that is, is constructed in such a way that it never stops. That is also new. Okay. Here comes the gardener. Now up to five. He'll be dismissed. Here come Bartolo, Basilio, and Marcellina. We are now up to seven characters. 
And this will be built up like a symphony to an incredible climax. You'll remember we discussed the concertato in Italian opera. The middle of the opera, where there's a stalemate, nobody moves, but everybody sings. And that's where, this is where it was created. And it winds itself up into this. As always, I will leave you hanging midway in the opera so that you'll discover it little by little. Tonight's a very special night for me because it is the first time in my life that I have conducted The Barber of Seville and The Marriage of Figaro in the correct order within 48 hours. I'm going to have a great time. You too. Thank you so much for coming.